everyone. Welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host, Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey everybody, it's Eric alongside Rod. We're here to talk about number 10 Rutgers as we continue our Big Ten previews for the 2023-2024 season. Uh, Before we begin, I just want to remind you that you can support our show in a number of ways. One, you can visit our sponsors like Nudge Printing at nudgeprinting.com. You can also go to the Brothers to Just Two Gutters at brothersgutters.com. And you can financially support our show. And you can do this at the final four is not the schedule.com slash support. You can give one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo or a recurring gift through Substack or Patreon. Uh, those who are on Patreon and Substack will qualify for a drawing at the end of the month for either one or two uh, gift cards to Nudge Printing. So you get a free logo shirt from our show, or you can save it up or use part of it to buy a, a hoodie since the temperature is dropping and winter is coming. And also the easiest thing to do is to just stop for a moment, leave a written review on your podcast player, and that will let other Spartan fans find our show through the algorithm. It helps organically grow the show and a whole lot to help our show and help it grow and stay healthy. If you're interested too, you can get a $5 gift card to Nudge Printing by just take a picture of that screenshot of your written review, send it to me, eric at tiffnots.com, and I'll get you your $5 gift card that you can spend at Nudge Printing, which you can then also use the Final Four coupon code at checkout to get 20% off whatever your order is. Also a reminder that we are having the Big Ten contest again. So the Beat Rod contest, you have to predict the order of the Big Ten standings, 1 through 14. Uh, so you can send those to me at eric at tffionots.com. Make sure you put in the, your name, obviously. And then the total points that Michigan State scores against Michigan this season, and they do play twice. So it's one of the dual play teams this season for Michigan State. All right, so we're going to talk about Rutgers, which is a very interesting story. I think, you know, Five years ago, Rutgers was, uh, they were a doormat, and now they have turned it around. And we saw saw those signs from Steve Peichel a couple years ago, just not quite sure if that uh, the way he played was going to be one that they, he didn't have time and patience with the university to you know, execute his plan. Uh, but the signs of them being a good team and being a frustrating team to play and certainly a harder venue at, at, at the um, Jersey Mike's <laughs> or the Rack, as, as affectionately called, uh, was there and it has came into fruition number of NCA tournament bids. And then last year was a weird year. Um, Rutgers missed the NCAA tournament and a lot of people, including our Dom, who we had is a number one bracketologist in the country. He had him in the field and they were the last team out. Uh, so they, uh, there's not a lot of love lost by Michigan state fans for Rutgers because I think in, a, I think most Michigan state fans did not have any animosity towards the Scarlet Knights. And then the whole shooting at Michigan State, Rutgers was unwilling to move some games around and kind of compress their schedule in order to accommodate, to allow Minnesota to come to Michigan State for a basketball game. And then Rutgers fell apart. <laughs> the wheels came off. They were doing really well. They, As you probably recall, unfortunately, they beat Michigan State at Madison Square Gardens. Uh, and they were 8-4 the conference. They looked like they were an easy place to finish well within the field and state tournament and then just things just fell apart and uh, you know that was partly reflection maybe of mag what mag getting hurt uh, but either way they went two and six to finish 500 league they had some good road wins at wisconsin and penn state but then 
really bad loss at Minnesota, which we discussed, you know, a couple of episodes ago. I mean, Minnesota was a, they weren't even like a mid-major <laughs> level team as far as the Ken Palm ratings rankings. And so losing to them was a really bad loss. They also lost uh, at Nebraska, who was you know, playing oh, better, at, but still these are some bad losses. At home. Oh, at home. That's right. At home to Nebraska. Right. You're right. It, even worse, right? At home in Nebraska. So Rutgers overall, though, they were really good defensively as they've been under Steve Peichel. They were sixth in the nation. They had great defense against threes and twos and the 25th best for turnover percentage. They were very aggressive. They didn't foul a lot. They were 71st in free throw attempts or field goal attempts. Uh, but as has been the case for as long as I can remember, they really struggled offensively. Uh, they finished 151st overall in offense and really couldn't do much of anything except to rebound the ball offensively where they were 67th, which is not fantastic, but it's okay. Yeah. And, and so there's a, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, yeah. But first we'll start with what Steve Peichel has done, which I, I think is an amazing job that is very much worth lauding. Um, he had taken a program that not only had been a doormat ever since I entered the big 10, but frankly has very, very, very little in the way of basketball history. The only thing they've got that puts them a leg up on programs like Nebraska and uh, Northwestern, let's say, is that they did have one final four run in 1976. Um, so they had that one special season. They've had a handful <laughs> of other NCAA tournament appearances, but it had largely been about a 20-year down period when Peichel took that job. And, you know, it was widely considered to be a coaching graveyard. You look at the scenario, your the state school in New Jersey, where that doesn't seem to mean very much because everybody recruits there. Plus, you've got Seton Hall as good competition for in-state kids who are inclined to stay home. Mm -hmm. um, you yeah. have the rack, which has since turned into a really fun venue. But when you're losing, you look at it and say, this is a high glorified <laughs> high school gym. Right. Right. Yeah. So the facilities are not there. Um, there's no tradition to work with. I mean, on and on and on with the negatives. But Steve Peichel is an interesting guy. He played at UConn for Jim Calhoun, was there in the early part of Calhoun's tenure, if I recall correctly. Uh, he went into coaching, had the head job at Stony Brook, part of the SUNY State University of New York system, and turned them into a mid-major power. Did a really good job there. And then he he decided to take the Rutgers job. And I was impressed. You know, obviously, we get things wrong like everybody does. But I'm actually very proud of the fact that on this podcast, we had Steve Peichel identified as a guy who seemed yeah. like he might have the formula to get it done at Rutgers because Rutgers, you know, people always talk about the differences between basketball and football that, Oh, basketball, all you need is a guy or two guys and you can turn it around. Yeah. 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 It's not that simple, especially <laughs> in a place that's been down the way Rutgers was. I, I said, after that first season, I was so impressed with the way he got that team to defend and rebound, which became core elements of his program you you know sometimes guys come into this league as we've talked about already on this podcast and they have this identity uh, well we're going to press we want to play up tempo. we're going <laughs> to run people ragged it doesn't work in this league 
But what I have seen work is when a program defends at a high level, rebounds at a high level, that can serve as a bedrock to some level of success. Now, if you want to really succeed, like win Big Ten championships, you need more than that. But strong defense, strong rebounding are, are things that can make you credible quickly. And they also happen to be things that you don't necessarily need top 100 recruits to do well. If you've right. got guys who buy in and are coachable, you got a chance. And you could see it in his first season, even though they took a lot of losses, you could see it coming. And we said on this podcast, give this guy some time because he's already established some things that are very difficult to do. He's got an identity. If he can continue just steadily improving the talent level bit by bit every year, eventually this thing's going to come around. That is happening. You know, they made two straight NCAA tournament appearances before last season, and but for the COVID cancellation, would have had three because they were going to make it that year as well. Right. So right. they had some success. It's also the failure to make it last year is also in and of itself a sign of their success, his success, because it was seen as so shocking and disappointing. They've gotten to the point that I think their program expects to make it. You know, they haven't truly yep. contended for a Big Ten title. They haven't re really been in the mix for elite seed in the tournament yet. But you got to take these steps. They've now taken the steps that, you know, I would say somebody like Fran McCaffrey took maybe, you know, six, seven years ago where he started stringing together tournament appearances. And you couldn't you couldn't just automatically say, well, we'll write Iowa off at the start of every year. You knew they were credible. Um, his current recruiting class, the one that will be freshman season after this one, is shaping up to be, by a massive amount, the best in Rutgers history. They already have a commitment from one top five player. They seem extremely likely to be getting a second one. These are guys that are consensus number two and three in the country. The guy who hasn't committed yet but is expected to is Dylan Harper, who's the brother of former Rutgers star Ron Harper Jr. That's why they're expected to get him. It's Rutgers mm -hmm. and Duke, and the consensus is Rutgers. The other guy's Ace Bailey, who's the number three recruit in the country. They just signed a top 150 kid from Detroit um, named Dylan Grant, who I like a lot. I don't think he was a take for Michigan State for a variety of reasons, but I think he's got a chance to potentially be a very good player at Rutgers in time. So they're, the talent level's upgrading. He's already been doing that. Getting a guy like Cliff Omarui, we, we've seen um, in the last few years. He's got an incoming kid this year, Gavin Griffiths, who we're going to talk about, who is a, a top 50 national recruit. He's getting guys already that Rutgers historically has not gotten. So you're seeing it come into exactly the kind of focus that I thought was possible when they hired him. Rutgers had hired guys who had no chance to succeed in the past, you know. Um, years ago, before they were in the Big Ten, they hired a guy named Gary Waters, who was from Michigan, had been a very good coach at Kent State. I think he'd been an assistant maybe at Eastern. He had a he had a Mac background, a Midwest background, very good coach, but he was not built to coach Rutgers because he had no connections or experience on the East Coast. They hired Eddie Jordan, who was a former Rutgers player, but had largely been an NBA guy in his career. He just clearly did not have what it took. That was obvious. In Pykele, they got exactly the right guy to do the job. A worker 
a grinder, not a, not a showman type of coach from that part of the country. So he had the connections in place. He had a style in mind that he thought could work. He's executed it and he's built his program into what I would say, I wouldn't quite call them formidable yet, but they've become consistently competitive. And that's great by Rutgers standards historically. Um, it is interesting that you mentioned the, the sudden um, negative feelings, enmity that <laughs> yeah. Michigan State fans may have. This is the thing, though. All the, all the talk that I heard coming from Tom Mezzo, he blamed the Big Ten. What he was getting at is that he felt the Big Ten office should have come in and said, hey, Rutgers, you're going to do this, rather than leaving it to them to work out. I think that was his problem, which was probably the smart move because then it, it takes it away from becoming a coach versus coach thing, which probably doesn't serve anybody's interest, but that's not going to stop the fans. I think a lot of fans dislike this program now because of that. And it'll be interesting to see what the atmosphere is like when, when the two play um, and they become a thorn in MSU side. I mean, the last three years running, they've been tough to beat, you know, you mentioned that loss at MSG. That was a tough one. That was one I think Michigan State felt they should have won, and they didn't get. But it was actually the last bit of good news Rutgers had on the season. It was terrible that they hit that slide because they were in great shape, as you noted, to make the tournament. But a 2-6 and six close, uh, just not enough because they – and this has been the problem they've had. The reason they made the tournament the two years prior – is they'd had shaky non-conferences, but were really good in the league. And there were enough highly rated teams in the league that it overrode the non-conference. This time around, the Big Ten wasn't as good and they didn't fare quite as well. So it wasn't enough to overcome the fact that they didn't really have great non-conference wins. I, I think that you talked about what they were in terms of their profile. It was a very pikeal team on the defensive end. Unfortunately, offensively, it was also a very pikeal team. And it's not an accident that I think the decline started when the one guy, it was more than one guy, but most notably to me, the guy who I thought really made a difference for them, we're going to talk about in the departing players uh, offensively early in the year, Cam Spencer, who was just on a heater shooting the ball, kind of hit the skids a little bit, not off yep. the rails entirely, but he wasn't nearly as good down the stretch and they just didn't have enough else offensively to overcome that. You also mentioned uh, um, the injury to um, uh, Magwap to Mag. That was a quietly, it didn't look like a huge deal at the time because he didn't put up huge numbers, but in retrospect, I, I think you can clearly say that guy was a key to their team to holding the thing together. He was good defensively. He was an effective rebounder and he just kind of was one of those glue guys that made the whole better than the individual sum of the part, some of the individual parts rather. So interesting year. I, again, I, I think the fact that they missed the tournament does not mean that momentum is stalled because you can clearly see it happening for them in recruiting. I think Rutgers is here to stay as a competitive program. And to me, we'll, we'll talk about it in more depth. They're going to be very competitive in terms of finding a way to get back to the tournament. It's not a lock by any means, but I think they've got a chance. Yeah, and so just to talk about Rutgers, just in broadly, you know, I know we hadn't planned to talk about this, but you know, I I know that 
when you look at the Big Ten, that obviously with the new media deal, there's tons of new money coming into the conference and to all these teams. Rutgers has been a university, and I'm not sure why this is the case, but their athletics department has been really pretty much a financial disaster. Yes, I know there's a lot of been a lot of problems with the uh, contention with the state legislature and with the voters and yep. the students. And I think last, if it wasn't last year's the year before, they lost $70 million in their yep. athletic department. Yep. That has got to affect the ability to help build facilities for someone like Peichel, certainly Peichel, but you know, also the football. I mean, they're just a, when the revenue sports, they just have not, have not been, have any history of being good. I mean, the right. only thing that Rutgers like with the football, as you mentioned, well, we were the first one to have caught football game. <laughs> that's like their, that's like their sort of the, they hang their hat on. Uh, do you think that's going to hold them back? I mean, I've got to imagine on another level, they probably also struggle with NIL. I'm just going to guess because if they have trouble with their general financing, they probably don't have a lot of alumni support either. I, I think it's a fair point, but, um, and I'm looking this up as we talk, because you're right, we hadn't uh, we hadn't planned on discussing it, but it's a good point of discussion for sure. Yeah, so Pykel, um extended his contract in February of this year. So um, he's his deal runs through the 2030-31 season. Um, he is making um, almost $4 million a year. So that's a very, very competitive salary. Um, <clears throat> his buyout figure is very large. At the moment, it will decline over time, but um, it's 15 million for this year. It would drop to 13 million the year after that. That's a lot of money. Uh, you know, I think you raise valid points, but if he were going to move, I think he had the opportunity, and <laughs> you just didn't hear his, his name. Now, maybe an exception, and I don't know this, might have been if Dan. Her Hurley had struggled at UConn and that job came open again. I don't know how he would right. do that. Maybe that would be something he would have looked at, but that doesn't look like it's going to happen. Dan Hurley's won a national championship. I don't get the sense yeah. he's got a burning desire to be an NBA guy. Um, I think he's probably going to be there for a long time. So to me, you know, what Pykel could have, uh, I would think that he might've been a guy who was attractive to, you know, people at Georgetown or Notre Dame and you didn't really hear his name with those places, which tells me that it's kind of understood. He's in a good spot. They've obviously come up with the money for a sizable contract. Um, I think facilities, my guess would be that's going to have to be largely booster driven and what their situation is there. I've heard their NIL for basketball is actually okay. Not state of the art, but okay. They're not. They're not nothing. Um, and you would assume that's the case, given how they're recruiting this year. You know, right. um, they're going to have to come up with something to get those guys. You know, so I don't know. I think that I, I don't get the sense that there's momentum for a replacement for the rack anytime in the immediate future. Um, other facilities, I'm sure, it's something he's pushing for, but. Obviously, I feel they're on more solid ground with basketball now than football. That seems, I mean, Greg Schiano's there for his second tenure at Rutgers, so he certainly knows the landscape. 
Um, but football is just a much, much more of a commitment financially. I mean, there's a lot more that goes into that. I do think that Peichel has done enough and is continuing to do more with the recruiting to keep enthusiasm at such a spot that he's probably got enough to make it worth his while. Now, does he ever look to move? Who knows? But I would also say this. Um, the one thing Rutgers has got going for him is that in keeping him is that he doesn't play a brand of basketball that would be considered objectively pleasing from an aesthetic point of view. Right. I like <laughs> right. it. I respect it, but, and it works, but it's not Pico ball is at a new place is not necessarily going to jazz the new fan. <laughs> and for all his success, look, it's entirely accurate for us to wax rhapsodic about the job he's done there because I think it's warranted. But if you were, you know, Steve Peichel was taking the Notre Dame job or the Georgetown job, you know, he hasn't been close to winning a conference championship or anything like that. So you don't even have that to hang your hat on. Like if Tony Bennett decided to move somewhere else, yeah, it can be kind of an eyesore to watch it but he can flash a national championship ring and he, Peichel hasn't gotten to those levels yet. So I think conversely that maybe helps Rutgers keep him for the lawnish hall. He's also not a super young guy either. You know, he's in, I believe he's in his fifties. Um, so it's not like he's necessarily uh, going in. He's not Nate Oates of a few years ago or Shaka smart when he was hot coming off VCU, you know, it's just not that kind of profile in any way. So I don't know. It'd be something to watch, but I think, I think he's got enough and Rutgers fans probably feel like they've got enough that they can keep momentum going. That would be my guess. You certainly feel at this point that Rutgers, I mean, the, the amount, the gap they have to overcome in football to become, I mean, occasionally bowl eligible or make it, right. it is, pretty large right but exactly they're so there it really makes you feel like at this point if there's a little bit more success if you know maybe this new recruiting class next year it puts Rutgers in you know a contention for the big 10 that suddenly you have the makings of maybe a basketball school like, you know not that they're going to be a great basketball but that would be like the premier sport in on campus like you know at indiana or something like that where you have a football team and they're occasionally okay but the, you know you're basically a basketball school you could see you could imagine Rutgers becoming that if, you know, Pike has a long tenure of like, you know, 15, 20 years. For sure. Because here's the thing. If if you keep just getting into the NCAA tournament, you can figure that every once in a while, I mean, look, Matt Painter gets dinged constantly for being a failure in the tournament, right? And yeah. considering where they've been as a regular season program, yeah, they've underachieved. But he's had an Elite Eight. He's had a few Sweet 16s. So he's had some runs. If you knock on the door, and even as a Rutgers, and you get into, let's say, 10 NCAA tournaments in the next 12 years, something like that, which I think might be possible, um, a couple of those times, might you at least be a second weekend team? Yeah, the law of averages probably say you could be. At a place like Rutgers, that probably does make you a basketball school. I think <laughs> the odds of being, let's say, one of the 32 best teams in the country in basketball are much better right now than they are for their football program to ever get to that level. Right. For sure. Yeah. You could definitely imagine, you could imagine them getting, you know, cutting down some nets. 
at some point. Well, we've already uh, seen just, it. I mean, Rutgers just, basketball has, I believe, during this period, has occasionally graced the top 25. So they've been there. They've been ranked. Have they been ranked in football since they joined the Big Ten? I don't think so. I I don't believe they have. But Yeah. Uh, you know, well, when it comes to uh, climbing ladders and cutting your nets, maybe you have to climb your ladder to clean out your gutters. Not any fun, especially if it's more than a story. I don't know if you're like me. I hate ladders. I hate getting up on them. I'm always convinced they're going to slide down. And I've taken care of too many people who've fallen off ladders and messed stuff up. Uh, so you want to make sure you have the right people who take care of your gutters. And, and then the, be- the best choice are the brothers that just do gutters. That's because that's all they do. They're very efficient. They do great work. Uh, very affordable, and they can do anything. They can clean them, they can repair them, they can replace them, they can put the leaf guards on. Kurt and his team out on the west side of the state, Grand Rapids, all the way up to Lakeshore, and Greg and his team out in the southeast side of the state, in Detroit metro area, will take care of you. You will not go wrong, and it is a problem that you need to make sure you take care of. It's not good to ignore water problems on your roof, either at your home or your business. So give them a call. You can contact them uh, using contact information below, you can just go to brothersgutters.com and search for your area, or you can just find the contact information below in your podcast player or on the website. Uh, you get 10% off if you type in Final Four when you make your appointment. All right. So we'll talk about departing players for Rutgers. Number one, of course, is Caleb McConnell. He's a 6'5 Defensive Player of the Year two years ago, and he was, he's been key for establishing that culture like you talked about, the sort of the tough, hard-nosed defensive character of the team. Uh, but also his offense sort of also exemplifies what Rutgers has been. He averaged nine points a game, five and a half rebounds a game, but he shot 40, 20, and 65. So he never really could get going as far as uh, from the offensive standpoint. But from a defensive standpoint, he was critical to their success and their rise over the last couple of years. Yeah, just emblematic of what Peichel has done. And so, you know, his his last four years, you're talking about what should have been three NCAA tournament appearances, and then last year where they were all but in and somehow frittered away. Um, that's by Rutgers standards. That is great team success for a career. And yeah, Caleb McConnell was far from perfect. He could never dial in the jumper, which meant he was limited in terms of being, a, let's say, an all Big Ten level guy. But boy, he was important to what they did because of his defensive ability he was a decent secondary ball handler, um, you know, just a very good player for them. And so the next two we'll talk about are the somewhat surprising departures. The first yep. is Paul McCahey, six six point guard, who had his COVID year, and he decided to to not only just not return. I think it wouldn't have been that surprising for him to go pro, let's say, but he left for uh, Big Ten powerhouse Washington Huskies. Uh, he's, he averaged 8.3 points a game and 3.6 rebounds a game, shot 42, 37 and 72, obviously unlimited volume with his uh, threes, uh, led the team in assists at almost five a game at a two and a half to one assist to turnover ratio. A guy I always liked playing, uh, liked watching play. I mean, not only because of his name reminds me of MASH, the TV show with Father Mulcahy, but, uh, he also played defense just was, I mean, just an all great all around player and a good leader for that team. Yeah, this is a weird one. And I've, I've read some stuff that suggests that he's had some buyer's remorse with that decision to go to Washington. I, it was hard to understand. I mean, the one part that kind of makes some sense is Washington's coach is a guy named Mike Hopkins, who was a long time Jim Beheim assistant at Syracuse. So he's a guy with some East coast connections. If you remember 
that's where Isaiah Stewart ended up instead of MSU or Duke. Um, and Isaiah Stewart was from upstate New York. Well, okay, he's a New Jersey guy, but still, I, without digging too deeply into it, I have to imagine something in that was was part of it. But still, it's Washington. I mean, right? It yeah. just I don't, make much I sense. did not understand it. It, it. Not even just that it's Washington, but Washington also earlier in the portal got a transfer. Uh, Severe Wheeler, who had been a starter at Kentucky, who's a point guard. So it didn't even make sense from that perspective. I, I just did not understand it. He was so perfect of a fit for Rutgers. And it, it's a it's a loss. I mean, there's no two ways about it. I think they've got a chance to get past it. But Mulcahy, just like McConnell, was a really important part of what happened the last four years. Um, always an efficient player, not a high volume shooter, but a uh, good defender shot well efficiently when he did shoot um, his size made him a very difficult cover. God knows he gave MSU some real issues the la- at times the last couple of years with his size uh, had yeah. a really nice ability to play in the lane, play with his back to the basket, still facilitate offense. Um, didn't make a lot of mistakes and again was sound defensively. So big loss because of everything he did for making teammates better. Yeah, it's a it's a very strange departure because again, he's not going to a program that's super successful. I mean, you're arguably he's a much better chance of making the NCAA tournament yes. staying at Rutgers than he would going yeah. to Washington. Absolutely. Um and this is always one of those where you kind of wonder if there's if it's not a personality conflict, is there like, you know, I assume at this point he's a master's student. Is there like a master's program at Washington that's better that you know, that what is no what he wants to do that he can't do at Rutgers? Chance. I don't know. I mean I no chance. <laughs> These decisions are never, never driven by that. No, and apparent by all accounts, his relationship with Pico was great. It just it was hard to understand. This is one of those things where the only maybe this cuts the other way from what you and I just talked about in terms of my take on this, but the only thing you can conclude that makes a lot of sense is well, somebody dropped the bag. Somebody paid him a lot of NIL. But it doesn't make a lot of sense on a couple Washington? levels because yeah. Washington, it's not Kentucky, yeah. not Kansas, it's Washington. So am I supposed to believe that Washington and, and and that's when you get into some of this stuff that, you know, we we like to pretend that NIL has just eliminated the possible everything's above board now. Right. All the paychecks yeah. are legal and blah, blah, blah. But. <laughs> There are still murky corners of this world that operate. And Mulcahy is not a guy you would automatically assume would be likely to be part of that. But it's just a weird thing. And then you start hearing this stuff. uh, Maybe about a month ago, I heard it that, oh, he's not happy out there. Well, he didn't opt to go back into the portal. I think he would have had to have, I don't know what his situation would have been, whether he would have needed a waiver or as a grad transfer, he would have been free to move again. I don't know. But um, that starts making you wonder, boy, was this made for reasons entirely unrelated to basketball and, you know, on the court. And now that the basketball parts clicking in, he's finding that it's not a great fit. I don't know. Yeah. Well, he certainly didn't go for the weather. (laughs) Uh, so the next guard I was mentioned alluded to earlier is Cam Spencer. So he was a a portal addition last season. Uh, he was 
very good, especially like you mentioned earlier, he was really good up to the first, um, the first half of the season or first three, two thirds of the season. Very good defender. He was uh, second, the team in steals and offensively, he was one of their, one of their good weapons is where he averaged 13.2 points a game tying for the team lead and scoring it with shooting 44, 43 and 89 shooting. And so he'll obviously be missed and not surprisingly, maybe he went to UConn, which makes a little bit more sense. Yep. I mean, it's a national championship yep. team and, you know, a good program. Uh, that makes much more sense to me than going to Washington. But either way, he's also leaving and departing. I think it Rutgers. was, I think it was very disappointing for Rutgers to lose him. And I think what it initially, and he got into the portal. Okay. He flirted with going pro. So his decision, you know, it was, it waited till that unfolded. And then, he didn't actually formally announce when the deadline hit for withdrawing from the draft. So there was mystery there for a couple of days. The whole thing was weird. And then he, it became clear that he was coming back to college, but then he announced he was going into the portal and he ended up at Washington after lots of other schools would have all made more sense. were speculated. Cam Spencer got in much earlier in the process. It, it seemed likely that he was, if I remember correctly, it was UConn and Georgetown. And so, again, staying on the East Coast, I believe he's from Maryland originally. Um, and uh, those just made a lot more sense. And UConn obviously has a program with enough tradition that and enough money behind it that I imagine he's being compensated well via NIL. And he's joining a team that won the national championship. And although they're not favored to repeat, they're certainly expected to be very competitive. Uh, so this one made a ton more sense. Um I don't know if I'm entirely convinced who the real Cam Spencer is, though. Because as you say, for the first two-thirds of the season, he was really good. And then that last bit, he just kind of hit a wall. And it wasn't like he fell off the face of the earth, but he was clearly not the same guy. And that hurt Rutgers, for sure. Um, You know, he's a loss all the way around because he was really good defensively. He was a disruptive player and he gave them deep shooting, which is something I can tell you flat out. They didn't have enough of last year and it's a big question mark coming into this season. So no, no way to spin it. Big loss for them. Next departure is six, nine, four man, Oscar Palmquist, who didn't play a whole lot at, at Rutgers and ended up leaving for Elon. He averaged 2.3 points a game in, uh, 21 appearances this last season. Yep. You know, a, a guy they thought could emerge into a s- consistent stretch for just never managed to, to get those steady minutes. And um, the fact that he's leaving for Elon tells you something about how he's perceived. Exactly. And that goes a little bit for the next player, Dean Reber, 6'10 senior. He was a stretch four, but he also couldn't get in and play as much as he probably wanted to. He only averaged 1.8 points a game in 28 appearances. And he's uh, also transferred to a smaller school, Charlotte. Yeah, a little little higher level than Palmquist. And Reber seemed to be a guy who, to me, there were several times during his years there where he seemed as if he was on the verge. And then he could just never get over the hump of you know, claiming a substantial rotation role. They could have used him at his size if he could have consistently been a shooting threat. Uh, and and also you know do the job defensively and rebounding in the paint. There were minutes for him, but he could just never play consistently enough to do that. And finally, six two junior guard Jalen Miller. 
he was uh, someone they expected to be able to contribute defensively, and uh, he just never really got on the court too much, and so he ended up transferring to Oral Roberts. Well, he got jumped last year, plain and simple. He played some minutes as a freshman, and they really liked his potential as a defensive player, uh, and they thought he would develop over time offensively. But Derek Simpson, who we're going to talk about, came in last year as a freshman and just leapfrogged Miller in the rotation. And I think that's why Miller kind of saw the handwriting on the wall and decided to, to leave for Roberts, you know, jumping down clearly a level or so. Well, let's talk about the returning players right after we discuss briefly Nudge Printing. Nudge Printing is our original sponsor. They are, do fantastic work run by Spartan grads, Gabe and Brittany out in Portland, Michigan, all Michigan produced apparel. Uh, great stuff. They have the vintage Spartan logos. Logos. They've got the regular Spartan stuff. I just—they uh, are the ones who give, provide all the gifts for our contest, both the uh, Beat Rod contest, and also our monthly giveaway that we've had last week or, or last month or so. Uh, so if you are a, of course, if you are a Patreon or patron through the Patreon or through Substack, you qualify for that—a random drawing to win a T-shirt. Uh, you get our logo T-shirts or logo hoodies. They're super comfortable. They're what I use to win my. Uh, free throw competition to get tickets to the final four. You can't go wrong. They're just, it's fantastic stuff. You get 20% off if you mentioned final four at checkout. And I don't know what more I could say, except it's really great. We had one of the, um, someone who just won a prize through us and uh, was very happy because he's going to buy some Alma gear. So they also have just non-Michigan state stuff too. So you can go there and check out other schools in Michigan and just a couple random schools around the country, like Texas state who Dom, the uh, bracket guy who, uh, Bracketal just met with us earlier. That's where he went to school too. So anyway, let's talk about the returning players for Rutgers. Cliff Omaruye, who's probably the most uh, well-known of the Rutgers players right now. He's uh, averaged 13.2 points a game, 9.6 rebounds a game, blocks more than two shots a game, shot 51% from the floor, very poor from the three, only four of 22. But, uh, and he's not great at the line, just shoots 60%. But he is the... He is the, you know, the defensive anchor of the team and a, a force. And he's defensively, he's really tough on the boards and then just with putbacks and things like that. You can make a case, I think a pretty good one, actually, that through his improvement and attrition, so guys leaving the league, um, he's got a pretty good case to make, I think, for being uh, as high as the second best big man in the league entering this season behind Zach Eady. Eady's the only one that I would decisively rate above him. You know, if you go back a few years, you had all these guys running through the Big Ten, uh, Coburn and Dickinson and Garza, you know, all these guys. And Omarui was just learning and getting better, and then some of these guys leave. That's where I think he is. It, It Look, we just talked about a couple guys that were unpleasant surprises for Rutgers departing. This was a pleasant, I don't know if it was a surprise, but it wasn't a given that he'd come back. And to get him back is a big deal because it gives them an anchor in the paint. The production was there. I mean, he almost averaged double-double, two blocks a game. Um, He can get better, but the offensive game has shown improvement. He is is tough around the rim because he's got a high motor. He plays with great effort. He's strong physically. You know, if he can just get a touch better still this year and show that continued development, it's going to help this team a lot. Uh, They need him, precisely because they lost some of the guys we talked about, they need him to uptick. You know, 13.2 points a game is okay. 
I would think that Pico looks at him and says, Hey, I need 15, 16, you know? And I think yeah. he could give them that, but I think that's what they need. Yeah. And for a team that can't shoot real well and, you know, we, don't, yep. we won't know until this year, you want someone who is inside who can get you some consistent buckets. Right. And so that exactly. makes sense that you have exactly. a guy like him. Yeah. Uh, so moving, moving on six, seven, senior mag, mag, what mag, who we spoke about earlier, who had that really unfortunate injury that just, I is at least a catalyst, I suppose, for them falling apart. He averaged eight points a game, 5.3 rebounds a game at the starting at the four shot 50, 30 and 74. But it was, you know, his defense is what kept him on the floor and what really caused problems just because it was real long, his length. I don't know what his wingspan is, but it's certainly way more than six, seven. Yeah. He's a good player, you know, and he's one of these guys that you really have to watch to fully, I think, to fully appreciate what he brings. Um, he just some guys are that where they they don't put up overwhelming numbers, but they're connective players. They keep your defense connected. They they do dirty work on offense and chip in within a camp. Seven point eight points isn't a ton, but it's not nothing. And they needed him, and I think they missed him when he was out of the lineup, and it showed up on on the in the standings for sure. So big positive to have him back and likely, in my opinion, starting at the four. Next returning player is Andre Hyatt, 6'6", senior, averaged 8.8 points a game and 3.9 rebounds a game, shot 37, 31, and 70. Uh, So he's probably going to play the four as a reserve, but there's a chance he might play the three of the wing at at times as well. Yeah, he's more of a four, I think. But um, the bottom line is, he'll play a lot regardless because he's experienced and he's been reasonably productive right. enough that he'll get, he'll get regular turns in the rotation. But if he could uptick that deep shooting a bit, maybe be more of a 35% guy that helps, you know, that'll make them just that much better. Uh, next is Derek Simpson, six, three sophomore. Uh, he was a pretty good guy and he seemed to really get better as the season went on. I liked this yep. game a lot. He averaged a little over seven points a game on 37, 22 and 79 shooting. So obviously his outside shot, not so great, uh, but you know, he's going to be probably an important part for them going this for this season. No question. And I think he can play on or off the ball. I think he'll do both, but you know, with, with Mulcahy leaving that and Spencer, both that opens up a clear spot in the, starting lineup in the backcourt and Simpson's almost certainly going to take one of those spots. He was, I thought really good by the end of the year. He's one of the few guys they had who was playing better at the end and not worse. Uh, obviously <laughs> the three point shooting needs to improve, but the fact that he was 79% from the line at least gives you a data point that that may be possible that he'll get better, but look, he, he's got to take a jump and I think he's got a chance to, they, with the talent they lost in their backcourt, they need a few guys to step up, and he's one of them, to to be more of a steady producer. Um, seven points a game was nice in the role he was in last year. I would say for Rutgers to be good, he probably they, – they would hope that he'd be a double-digit scorer and much more efficient with his shot. Next is Antoine Wolfhook, 6'9", 260-pound sophomore, was a backup for Omarie. Uh, he averaged 2.3 points a game and 1.6 rebounds a game but in only eight minutes. So he's definitely someone who can get some, make it affect the game uh, and shot 67% from the floor, although obviously that's limited attempts with as few points as he scores. Yeah, but the thing I like about that is when a guy shoots that percentage 
most of the time, there would be occasions where maybe it would be indicative of someone not taking enough chances. But in his case, I think that number demonstrates that he's got a pretty good idea of what he is. And so he only Mm -hmm. takes shots that he should be taking. And he makes the vast majority of them. I liked him. He was a guy with a football background and ended up playing basketball. Um, He looks the part at 6'9", 260, and a very good backup. He can play Pikel-style basketball. You know, he's going to lay a body on you. He can rebound. He can give you a little bit around the rim. Still not much of a scorer at this stage, but I also like the way he moves well at that size. You know, uh, I think he's got a chance. Maybe his his upperclassman years, maybe he's a guy who's capable of being a starter, but for now, pretty decent backup, I think, with potential to get better. Uh, finally, returning player is Antonio Cole, a 6'9 redshirt freshman from Buffalo. He was a reclassified from the into the 22 class after originally being at 23, but he pl- only played four games and elected for the redshirt. So he's, uh, I guess, played kind of small forward or wing. Yeah, and they like, you know, the size at 6'9, but with some yeah. shooting ability, um, you know, if he can if he can hit shots, he can earn a role. I think it's just kids that reclassify so often. It's tough on them. He was another one who found out, hey, it's a bigger jump than you think. <laughs> and, you know, played those four games and then took the red shirt, which showed some maturity and and smarts on Pykel's part as well. Say, look, it's it's probably not going to happen this year. Let's not burn your year. And because, uh, you know, these guys are not going to have the COVID year to work with. So it's going to be back to the old days. And so having an extra year banked means either you can play to Rutgers or you can play it somewhere else. So it's in his interest. It's also probably in the team's interest, at least for now. But um, they like him. They like his potential and they think he could help. We'll see how much that happens this year. Yeah, you always worry about those guys who reclassify and then you throw them out there and just kind of hope for the best like Indiana did when I can't remember his name, that guard, and he just never really Yeah, well, small. I'll back. say this. Smaller guards in particular have a terrible track record with that. Um, bigger players, it's more of a mixed bag, but it's, yeah, it's tough. So let's talk about the newcomers to the Scarlet Knights. Uh, we'll begin with Gavin Griffiths, top 50 recruit nationally, 6'7 wing, who can play shooting guard or small forward. Uh, so, you know, what do you think about him and how he's going to fit into this team this season? Well, he's been getting rave reviews. They took, a, I believe they took a foreign tour and Griffiths was really good. So I think we are on safe ground saying that it is expected he will be in the starting lineup. Because they, look, we, we talked about it earlier. You lose Mulcahy, who wasn't a high-volume guy, but shot 37% from three. And you lose Spencer, who was a high-volume guy and shot 43%. That's a lot of three-point production to replace from a team that didn't have enough of it to begin with. (laughs) So you've really got to go. And Griffiths, the thing that everybody talks about is that he's an elite shooter. And at 6'7", that's great because, you know, at that size, playing on the perimeter and as a shooting weapon – you're going to be you're going to be tough to defend because your size is going to mean that it's going to be very difficult for opponents to disrupt you. Um, so he's got every chance, I think, to be a major part of this team. He also maybe a little bit unusually guys who have that reputation as shooters tend to also have a reputation as finesse players. But the word on him is that 
he's got some toughness. He's not afraid to mix it up physically. Uh, so I would expect Gavin Griffiths is going to play a lot of minutes, take a lot of shots. And even though he's not a guy that I feel like is getting talked a lot about nationally in that freshman class, I think when you look at the combination of talent, potential, and opportunity, and the last part gets forgotten too much. You know, you look at Michigan mm-hmm. State's yeah. freshman. Well, Michigan State's got arguably three guys out of the four in their class that are rated higher than Gavin Griffiths. I don't think any of them have as clear a path to a major role this year as Gavin Griffiths has, you know? <laughs> so he could be a sneaky pick for somebody who might be, you know, newcomer of the year in the league. I mean, he's, if, if his shooting talent really is as good as it's been suggested, Rutgers can take all of that he's got to give. And there is a wide open opportunity for him to be a starter and play a lot of minutes. So I'm expecting he's going to be an important part of this team. And if he's not, that's a big problem. And you expect to, with this, with the Rutgers team, the defense is going to be fine. And, and if you can score, you're going to find a, yeah. going to find some minutes in this team. Yeah. And that's uh and that goes along with the next player too, Noah Fernandez, five eleven transfer from Massachusetts. He averaged 13.4 points a game on 48, 45 and 64 shooting along with 4.1 rebounds or sorry, assists per game. And it was just a little bit under two to one assisted turnover ratio. Uh, but of course he got injured, uh, hurt his ankle and they expect him to be healthy this year. So I imagine he's going to be the starting point guard or at least share the responsibilities of the season. And with that kind of three point shooting, you'd expect he's going to find some minutes on the floor for sure. Yeah. I mean, the one caveat here is that he's coming off the ankle injury. Now the expectation is he's a hundred percent. He was considered to be a significant portal addition. And yes, he, along with Griffiths and Simpson, those are probably your three starters at the guard spots. He'll play on the ball a lot. He can play off the ball some too, but I think, you know, he and Simpson will be somewhat interchangeable there, but I would, I would expect Fernandez will be on the ball more often than Simpson is. Uh, So if he can be effective there and then bring anything close to that shooting level that he had at UMass in those 11 games, that's huge. Again, just as with Griffiths, Rutgers needs Fernandez to be for real. And speaking of guards, the next is 6'3 freshman guard, Jamichael Davis. Uh, so he's going to be, you know, again, fighting for minutes there. And again, I think, you know, if you can defend, rebound, and if you can, especially if you can score, you'll find some time on the court. Yeah. And I, I look at him as something of a replacement in a way uh, for, um, for Jalen Miller. He's an inch taller, but, you know, similar kind of profile, except they, they think he might be able to transition on the offensive end a little bit more quickly but they really like him defensively. If he can guard well, you know Steve Peichel's going to find some minutes, and they could sure. use some yeah. depth there. So I think he's got a good chance to at least have a limited rotation role, maybe more than that, depending upon how it breaks down. Uh, next is 6'11", 240-pound Juco transfer center, Emmanuel Ogbole. He was a late addition to the team, but he's obviously going to be fighting for spot at the five and maybe uh, pushing Wolf look a little bit for the reserve spot behind Omarui. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I guess my assumption is I always give the edge to the guy who's been in the system longer. So we right. folk, but you know, he's a veteran. He played a couple of years, at the Juco level. They think he's, he's obviously got legit size. 
uh, decent athleticism. They think he can rebound and defend. It probably comes down to one of those two guys, not both. That would be my guess. Right. Yeah, because you can figure Oberui is going to be playing 25, 26 minutes. You're not going to I mean, at I guess least you get, maybe 30. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So there's not going to be a lot of minutes behind him. Right. And then you're, you, it's hard to split that between two guys. I don't think either of these guys is, I mean, it's possible they might see some four minutes, but I think between Mott and, um, and Hyatt, they've got the four kind of covered. So right. it feels like it's either or. Uh, so next player, uh, we always have to have a caveat when we mention anyone who from the state of Iowa, it seems Jeremiah Williams, six, five transfer from Iowa state. Uh, transferred to Illinois and then left and went back to the portal, went to Iowa State. So it got injured. And as it seems to be the case when we ever mentioned him from Iowa or Iowa State, there are gambling problems here. And so I think, you know, he's wrapped up in all these, these uh, well, the issues they've had. And I'm not sure if this is a reflection of the state of Iowa, just having an investigation and they haven't, and other states haven't done this, or if it's just unique to Iowa that they've just had these problems in their athletic departments, both the, both the major colleges. I, I would strongly suspect it is the former. It is that Iowa mm-hmm. has had a state, an active state investigation into this. Um, I have to believe that this stuff is going on all over. Yeah. It's I just, mean, what I guess too. it's too easy. It's too easy with FanDuel and, uh, draft kings and and all the rest it's just too easy to gamble now and i i don't doubt that it is a much in fact i think every school in america probably sure you you definitely shouldn't be ridiculing what's going on with the iowa schools because it could be your school next if you know okay. there but for the grace of god let's put it this way <laughs> I don't. I don't believe that guys at other schools aren't gambling, sometimes even on their own team, and that's. It is suspicious too that it's both schools, right? Like if it was just yeah. Iowa or just Iowa State, you'd say, "Well, it's an institutional problem." No, but it's clear. The it's fact clearly, that it's both the schools, it's it's a it's a athletic problem more than anything. Well, it's a state. It's a state. It's a state government decision, right? Yes. To prosecute yes. this, yes. That's why it's Iowa and Iowa State players, and you're not seeing it elsewhere. Not at this level, at least not yet. I mean, we've seen it, you know, the NFL, they kind of smacked the Lions. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of their wide receivers is going to miss the first six games of the year. He even placed a bet on his own team. He happened to do it while on um, while on team property, which was the right. essence of the problem. It wasn't that he placed the bet. It was that he did it while he was on an NFL team's property, their practice facility. These Iowa deals seem worse. Yeah, well, they were right. They were, I mean, they're betting on their own. In some instances, they're betting on their own games, which you have to. I don't blame the state of Iowa or the NCAA one bit. You can't, that's the one thing you cannot tolerate. You can't do it. Right. I can see the arguments for saying, hey, if they're gambling on some other sport, who cares? Okay, maybe. Um, Gambling on your own sport gets more problematic and gambling on games involving your own team, even more problematic. And that's the stuff that sinks the ship. When you, when you have the public determine that they have reasons to assign less credibility to the results 
of your games, you're done. It just, yeah. It's just death now. That's why you know people talk about it all the time as trumped-up charges and negative, and a lot of guys didn't do the things that they were alleged to have done. But when you look back at the 1919 Black Sox scandal, um, mm-hmm. which there's a great book and actually a really great movie, if you've never seen it, called Eight Men Out that I think is one of the best sports movies ever made about that scandal, which for those who might not know, the Chicago White Sox had several players uh, found to, well, I shouldn't say found to, at one point they were believed to have engaged in gambling, um, helping to turn the outcome against their own team in the World Series against Cincinnati Reds, who were big underdogs and ended up winning the series. And it led to lifetime bans for several players, most notably Shoeless Joe Jackson, who was a Hall of Famer on a Hall of Fame trajectory. Um, he never played Major League Baseball again after that was decided. It also led to the installation of a commissioner. The sport had not had a commissioner up to that point. But the reason they treated it that, that way and why I, I can even, even with all the skepticism around certain elements of the story, can understand it is you had to treat it seriously because the integrity of the sport was involved. If people didn't yeah. believe that guys were trying, why are they going to care? And if they don't care, they're not spending their money on you. And then you don't have a business. So it's pretty important. Yeah. Anyway, the deal with Williams, he probably wasn't going to play anyway because, again, so he was at Temple. And he was okay there, averaged two years ago, uh, averaged nine and a half points, 42, 23, 63 shooting. He also had almost a two-to-one assist-to-turnover ratio, and he's got size at 6'5", playing the point. So there's some positives, but he transferred to Iowa State, had an Achilles injury, then transfers again temporarily to Illinois, then left there, then ends up at Rutgers. But he was always going to have to petition for a waiver, and the NCAA thus far has not been granting these things. So... I think that um, I think that uh, it was always going to be questionable, uh, and uh, and now you know this this gambling thing just exacerbates the problem. So I think it's highly unlikely he sees the court this year, maybe ever. It's a safe bet to say he won't play this season. What yeah, I think so. And and depending <laughs> upon how the gambling thing is resolved, um, and I think I want to say he's another guy that was alleged to have bet on his own team, even though he wasn't playing. Um, I think that could be a big problem, but we'll see. Well, let's talk about the last player, uh, newcomer, another Williams. This one's Austin Williams, 6'4", 200 pounds, uh, missed out last season at FIU because of an injury. I uh, previously played at Marist and Hartford. So he also will need to get a waiver. Uh, during the 21-22 season, he averaged 16.1 points a game and 5.2 rebounds a game shot 50 31 and 62 so you know he's obviously can bring some scoring but i guess the question we will he get the waiver it's at least medical in nature which i think is in his favor a little bit to getting the an opportunity to play they seem more optimistic um look this is a guy who's a two-time all america east selection so well that you know america east okay that's not all big 10 but he's had real success at a lower level of play um, not a great three-point shooter, which would be the one knock, but he's also not been a high-volume guy. 
So that means he plays more inside the arc, getting to the rim, mid-range shots, kind of a sense that he knows who he is. I think at a minimum, this is why, you know, having Simpson back and adding Fernandez was so big because if they were counting on Williams to be a starter, you'd have more skepticism. They say, okay, mm-hmm. how's this guy going to translate? You don't, assuming he gets the waiver, you don't know. But if they're only asking him to maybe be, you know, 15, 16, 17 minutes a night off the bench, I like his odds a lot better to be productive. Good size for the position. So that helps. Um, but assuming he can play, I think with he and Jamichael Davis, that's got the potential for a decent tandem, you know, reserve tandem in that backcourt and maybe get you to a nice solid five man rotation, which should be good enough. Okay. So talking about Rutgers overall, you had them slotted 10th behind Michigan and ahead of, um, who did we talk about last week? I'm already, already Northwestern, uh, Northwestern. Yeah. Ahead of Northwestern. Uh, so obviously you think that that's sort of like bubbleish area for the yep. big 10. I mean, I think, you know, you're one or two wins away in the big 10 probably from making the tournament or missing it. And then, of course, next year they have a, two really good recruits likely coming in. So this is a, this is sort of like I guess you're a rebuilding year. But what do you think they can do this season, and how much uncertainty is there in this team? Do you think compared to like some of the other teams we talked about? Well, you know, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, honestly, next year I know there's going to be a lot of hype because of those guys, but they're highly ranked, yes, but they're highly ranked freshmen in a year that's not considered a great year. I don't know that I expect that next year is the year for Rutgers. Um, I think that they've got reason to, to take this year by year and look at this team and think, Hey, we can do some things. You're, you're correct in that. I see them as one of several big 10 teams that would appear to be likely to be in the bubble range. You mentioned Northwestern. They would be in that category. Um, Michigan would be another, Iowa would be another, you know, there's a few of these, maybe Indiana. I mean, there's a few of these, Indiana, I think is a little better than that, but um, there's a few of these teams that I can see it going either way. Um, And that will depend in part upon how tough the league ends up being and how good these teams are, how much they develop, you know, because if the league has a strong non-conference, well, as we know, all of a sudden, all these conference games help you a lot win or lose right or at least losing doesn't hurt you winning helps a lot um so we've just got to see but i i think pikel's got every reason to think that this team can compete to get back to the tournament if they had mulcahy and spencer back this was to me this was clearly an upper half big 10 team i wouldn't have any hesitation picking them there and figuring okay they'll shake off that end of the that end to the season yeah they lose mcconnell but you know, Griffiths is at least an offensive upgrade there. They had they had landed Fernandez for, you know, it looked like he was going to be maybe a key reserve initially uh, before they lost these other two guys. So the loss of those two guys, I think, this is how I think about it. I don't think it ruined or destroyed their ceiling. I think it made it less of a certainty that they'll reach it. It added much more variability into the picture, in my view. I can see a world where Fernandez and Simpson are collectively adequate replacements and Griffiths, too. That you take that three-man group versus last year 
Spencer, Mulcahy, McConnell, and you say, ah, it's more or less a wash in terms of productivity. I'm not saying I bet on it, but I can see it. I can see a path to that. If that happens, they're in pretty good shape. But if they had Mulcahy and Spencer to add to those guys, well, then you really got something, right? So it it reduced, it, it lowered the potential floor more than anything. I think they're going to be very good on the defensive end. Yeah, the, those guys they lost were all really good defenders, but I think Simpson's good. Um, I think that the front court's going to be very good. Griffith seems to at least have the right mentality for it. Fernandez is a little undersized. We'll see, but you know I, I think he'll be all right. And then Williams and uh, Jermichael Davis come in with decent defensive reputation. So, and they've got and they've got Magwatt Mount back hopefully for the yeah. whole season. So I expect it's going to be another typical Steve Peichel defensive juggernaut. Um, to me, it all turns on what happens on offense. Can they get better scoring out of the center spot? They need to. Uh, can Fernandez transfer, can his and his play transfer as he moves up from the A-10 to the Big Ten? And he comes off a year where he was mostly not healthy. Um, will he be effective? as a shooter uh is griffiths ready to go at the level that people think he is as a shooter can simpson be better you know uh do fernandez and simpson do an adequate enough job as playmakers running this team so those are the things that have to happen i think if they want to be improved they got to find a way to be improved on the offensive end and that's a legitimate question mark you know i think if all goes well they could be better than this, and they could be a tournament team. If it doesn't, there's even the potential that Rutgers could finish a couple notches lower because I look at them and I don't think they're decisively better than Northwestern for sure and maybe even arguably Nebraska. So there's a chance yeah. they could be worse than this. I would bet that the I think the odds of them finishing to the upside of this are better than finishing to the downside, but there's a range of possible finishes for this team i think that with pico coaching them the safe bet is they're going to be competitive they're going to be a bear to play against they're going to be really tough at the rack but i just don't have enough faith yet without seeing it in that offense being better enough to say oh yeah they're like a seventh place or eighth place team where the way things are now that pretty much should put you on the right side of the bubble in the big 10. I, I just don't see enough yet. I feel like I'm I, like you. I'm very confident that defensively and on, on the rebounding that they're going to be good. Even no matter who he throws on the court. I mean, they're going to have, they're going to compete there. And, you know, offensively that's the, where the challenges, the thing I struggle with most with this season and even more so than I think even last year, is I feel like the, there's such a huge change in the turnover and roster of all these teams, in the big 10, it's really hard. I, I know you've predicted <laughs> the one through 14, but most of these teams are really challenging to figure out what they're going to be because yep. there's so many players coming in from various leagues. And, you know, does a guy from UMass, well, he's just A-10, so you just suspect it translates pretty good for a Big Ten. Yep. But you know, just, but then you have a guy like Tyson Walker, came from Northeastern. Well, I say he's translated just great into Big Ten, right? But you just don't know but it, but it until you see these guys play. But it took yeah, to right. really settle in. I mean, he was – he had – you know, anybody – and I've seen <laughs> – I can't even cite you exactly where, but I've seen a couple of people nationally describe Tyson Walker's first year as terrible. 
it, it was anything but terrible. The frustrating part was he wasn't assertive enough. He was hesitant. Yeah, yeah, he was really, really efficient. You could see that it was there. He just needed to be more aggressive. And then last year we saw that. So that's an open question. Does even a guy who's got the talent, does, is he comfortable enough to let it all hang out, you know, in the first year? Very fair point. I think with all these teams, we're we're hedging our bets, and that's the best we can do because there's so much turmoil and shakeup on these rosters, team to team to team. This is an example. You had a backcourt last year at Rutgers that was pretty good. Not good enough to get them over the hump, but good. Three new guys this year starting. Only one of them was even on the roster last year, and he was a reserve. So what does that look like? I, As I mentioned, I can see a path to where you look at it in the end and say, well, there wasn't actually that much difference. Griffiths comes in and immediately translates as a shooter. Fernandez translates, transferring up. Simpson is more is improved in year two. I, all those are possible. But are you willing to bet on it happening? Tough to say. And then compare them to these other teams who have the same kinds of issues. You don't know. So this is my best yeah. guess. If I had to put money down right now, I'd put uh, I'd put it on them being just on the wrong side of the bubble, but close enough that I can easily see it tipping positively if enough things go right. All right. Well, you heard it here, folks. First, you can put your mortgage down on Rod guarantees yeah. that Rutgers will right. just nearly miss the tournament. Right. Yep. <laughs> so uh, just a reminder again to check out our great sponsor of the show, Nudge Printing. You get 20% off your order. Go to nudgeprinting.com and final four into the checkout at code at checkout. Uh, you can also go to Brothers Gutters to have your gutter work taken care of. Make sure they keep the water off away from your house or the, your business. You go to brothersgutters.com. And finally, to support the show, either financially or even with nice written reviews, Share it with your friends. Whatever you can do, it helps organically grow the show. We really appreciate it. You go to the final fours on the schedule.com slash support. And there you can find ways to uh, help support the show. Uh, so until next time, and number nine, oh, Michigan Wolverines. Final fours on the schedule. Go green. <laughs>